Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and boy do we have some science for you this week on the show. I'm joined by Claire and Chris as usual. Oh yes, wouldn't miss it for the world. Or other planets even. Yeah, I mean we are in lockdown, I've got nowhere else to go so. But you'd still be here even if you weren't in lockdown is what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. That's nice to know. And Claire, what have you brought in for us on the show this week? Well, Stu, I am actually veering into um, Stu territory this week. I've got a plant story. Nothing like a good plant story. We all (laughs) love a good plant story, don't we? We all love a good plant story. And like a lot of people in lockdown at the moment, um, I'm sure we're, we're restricted by where we can go. And you're probably doing the same walk that you've been doing for a pretty long time. For me, that walk um, involves a lot of trees that have just come into a beautiful yellow bloom. A lot of wattle trees and wattle bushes. You're wondering, what'll they do next? <laughs> exactly. That's what my story is about. It's it's all about, it is indeed all about what'll they do next. But what some of them have been doing is actually uh even though wattles are incredibly diverse and you know such um such a national symbol and a floral emblem um some of them end up in places that they shouldn't around australia so i'm going to be looking at what happens when you've got a native species that is also an invasive species and some of the issues around that like robbie burns said the best laid plants of mice and men Often go astray. So, <laughs> spoken like a true horticultural scientist. That was a, and a, was that Robbie Burns or was that Stewie Burns? <laughs> well, that was that was it's a, your uncle, right? <laughs> um, I think my great 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 grandfather actually something like that. <laughs> and Chris, what have you got for us this week? Look, I've got something. I've done a few of these kind of stories in the past where I've, you know, a, a physicist whose great things has died. And so I did talk about who they are and why you should know who they are. And this one feels a little bit different, though, because it's not someone who I previously had thought of having done great things because he was still, until very recently, very active and doing great things, um, even though he was quite old. And so it's kind of thing you just assume everyone's heard of him anyway, even though you probably haven't heard of Steven Weinberg. Haven't heard of him. And he was so well known to all other physicists that we kind of just assume, hey, everyone knows about Steven Weinberg. No need to talk about who he is and what he did. But apparently I need to, which is why I am doing this. Uh, yeah, so Steven Weinberg, he died last month at the age of 88. Uh, and yeah, before he died, a lot of people described him as the greatest living theoretical physicist. Look, the work that he was best known for and which for which he shared a Nobel Prize was unifying the electromagnetic and weak forces into something called the electroweak theory. Um, so I thought I'd talk about electroweak and what it means. And yes, it is a particle physics story. Claire, try and stay with us. Um, <laughs> I know, I know that I drone on about the particles, but um, I'll try and make this one uh, go down a bit easier. I promise. All right, I'll, um, I'll keep you to that promise. I think I think it sounds very exciting, Chris. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I've got to say, Electro Week sounds like a period in pop music from about 2003. Particle physicists, the elusive escaping wattles of uh, of Australia. So stay tuned for all of those stories later in the show. 
theoretical physicist Steven Weinberg was born in New York in 1933 to Jewish immigrant parents. He went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a specialized high school that is kind of notable because it has produced the most science Nobel laureates out of any school in the world. Uh, there have been seven physics laureates and one in chemistry. So wow. it is the place to go. So Weinberg had a long career covering many different aspects of particle physics, but also quantum gravity, supersymmetry, string theory, and cosmology. And he was a prolific author. He had a famous book about the Big Bang called The First Three Minutes. And he has an enormous three-volume textbook, The Quantum Theory of Fields, which, of course, I own. Um, all three volumes. Although I think the last volume I've got is only in paperback, so... You know, it's not that impressive, but... Are you a real fan? Hmm, uh, I don't know. Am I ever going to work through all the uh, the exercises in um, the three volumes of quantum theory of fields? It's one of those things that's on my list. <laughs> it's on your list. It keeps you up at night. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, Weinberg's most famous work was what won him the 1979 Nobel Prize in Physics, which he shared with the Pakistani-born physicist Abdus Salam and Sheldon Glashow, who also went to the very same Bronx High School of Science, in fact, in the same year as Weinberg. So there's two of our Nobel laureates in one hit. Maybe that's cheating if there's two of them. They, they were like lab partners in high school and they got the Nobel Prize together. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. wow. They didn't work together directly um, for the work that got them the Nobel Prize. So I don't know. But maybe there was some sort of behind-the-scenes collaboration. See, this prize was given for unifying the electromagnetic and weak interactions into the electroweak theory. To kind of explain what this means, um, you're probably familiar with the idea that there are four fundamental forces of nature that we know of. So there is the strong nuclear force, there is this weak interaction that I've talked about, there is electromagnetism, and there is gravity. Now, in particle physics, we really only have a good description of the first three of them because gravity is, you can't really measure it at the scale that we do our particle experiments because particles are so small and light. Um, but the other ones we're fairly familiar with, electromagnetism, you probably know about. Um, it is responsible for just about everything else that you see in the world around you. So light, obviously, heat, radiation, um, all of chemistry, basically, the structure of solids, liquids, and gases. Uh, also, it holds things onto your fridge. Um, <laughs> let's not underplay the importance of radio waves in that, oh, uh, totally, in that totally. description as well. Totally. Radio waves are up there with all of chemistry and the complete structure of matter. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, of, and, of, and, and the fridge magnets. And the fridge magnets, yeah. Uh, now, the strong nuclear force, it is only important at the nuclear level, uh, which we don't deal a lot with in our everyday life, but it is extremely important because it binds protons and neutrons together, and it also binds together the quarks or quarks, depending on your pronunciation. Still, that is a debated topic. Um, it binds together the quarks that make up the protons and neutrons. As its name might suggest, it is very strong. Something that actually makes it difficult to do calculations with the strong nuclear force because it is a bit too strong to do accurate calculations. It causes all mm. kinds of problems. They do all kinds of approximations and tricks and things. Now, the weak interaction, on the other hand, is it, like it's, it's very limited. It is involved in primarily in beta decay, which um, you know, the main kinds of 
of Red Hat Decay are alpha, beta, and gamma. So it's not even the, the it's not even the first one. It's beta decay, um, and that's where a nucleus gives off an electron and a neutrino. If you want to be um, pedantic, which kind of is our purpose here at Lost in Science, <laughs> it, it gives off either an electron and an anti-neutrino or an anti-electron and a neutrino. Because great, I'm glad we cleared a that up. Particle and an antiparticle. We would have been fielding phone calls on that one. <laughs> Inundated. For weeks. Oh, I should have <laughs> left if you it. Hadn't, if you had, yeah, look, <laughs> I should have left it. Don't, we don't have the time for that kind of feedback. Um, so electrons and neutrinos, they are collectively known as leptons, along with their heavier siblings, that, such as the muon and the tau one. They're called leptons just simply to distinguish them from quarks, which are essentially the other kind of fundamental matter particle. So you have the quarks, which make up the nuclear particles, the nuclei, and then the other matter particles you call leptons, and you group them together. Right. It's just a name. And this is important because back in the 1960s when Weinberg and the others were working at, were looking at all of this, they really didn't know anything about quarks or quarks. I call them quarks because, like most people call them quarks, but the guy who invented them called them quarks. So I feel torn about whether to call them one or the other. Yeah, mm. look, just because he invented them doesn't mean he gets to choose. I mean, the guy who invented GIFs calls them GIFs. So let's just, That's a very good let's point. just stick with the popular opinion. Quarks sounds the, more... More, um, I natural. like quarks. Quark, okay. Yeah. So, no, anyway, they didn't know about quarks in that stage because they hadn't been invented yet. Um, they just knew that the strong nuclear force was very complicated. There's all these kinds of weird particles that seem to be made out of something or other. But anyway, so instead, uh, Weinberg and Al, they decided to tackle the leptons first because there were fewer of them. They seemed a bit simpler. And also, only the weak interaction and electromagnetism act on the leptons. So Weinberg thought maybe because there's just these only these two forces act on these particles maybe they're the same force. I mean, Spoiler alert! Well, they 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 were. Um, <laughs> so he published his theory in a paper in 1967 called "A Model of Leptons," which is one of the reasons I'm going to introduce the name. So you would know when I said "A Model of Leptons," you go, "Oh, I know that." I know that. I know that. I know. I know that grouping of particles. Yes. Very familiar. This paper has been cited a lot, but it's only three pages long. Um, but oh. it basically just gets straight to the point and it's succinct and he basically hits it out of the park. It's the right first time, essentially. You know, if, if you're right, why take 30 pages to explain why you're right? You just go, bang, I'm right. There you go. Exactly. Three pages, done. Now, I believe that the work that Glashow and Salam had done was done a bit earlier, but they had used kind of a different method and Weinberg's is basically the version that we stuck with that we kept now because he, um, one of the things he used was the Higgs mechanism that was only a few years old at this point. And you've probably heard of Higgs bosons and things that were discovered a few years ago. In quantum field theory, which is what we're talking about here, um, quantum field theory is what describes the interactions between fundamental particles. So the forces that act on the particles, you describe them using various kinds of symmetries, but those symmetries, they're sort of, they're theoretical constructs. You don't necessarily see them preserved in the real world, especially when the particles have a mass, like that's not zero. Um, so Higgs and his colleagues had previously shown that you can fix this problem by introducing another field the Higgs field is now known as, that breaks the symmetry and gives the particles their masses, but keeps the maths underlying it all consistent. The symmetry is there at the base level. So Weinberg used this idea. In the case of, for electroweak theory, he had two symmetries. One is kind of, it gives us the interaction that occurs between electrons and neutrinos. And it's kind of like, they basically kind of rotates one into the other. You rotate an electron into a neutrino and vice versa. It's like they're sort of, they're objects existing in some imaginary mathematical space. Mm. 
Um, and yeah, and they can be kind of rotated in this. It is basically the equivalent of a rotation. The other symmetry is another kind of rotation, but just acts on the electron itself because electrons have electric charge and neutrinos don't. And so these are the two kinds of symmetries you used. And the symmetries bring with them things called bosons, which are the particles that mediate the forces. They're just a different thing to matter particles. They're particles that act between matter particles and cause the forces between them. Um, in this case, in this with these symmetries, you get a positive boson and negatively charged boson and and you get two neutral bosons. And then you apply the Higgs trick to make a mass real world, everything gets mass and everything just pops out with predictions of what you should see. So the your bosons, you get um, the, the charged ones, you call W bosons for the, for the weak force, W for weak, and you get a neutral boson called the Z boson for the zero charge. With me so far? <laughs> Absolutely. Some, some new fundamental force particles. But then you get another one left that has zero mass, um, has zero charge and zero mass. And that is the photon, which is the electromagnetic interaction. Right. Um, the other ones, the, uh, the W and the Z bosons, they actually turn out to be quite heavy due to the mass they get through the, through the Higgs field. And this is, explains why the weak force is, well, kind of so weak, why it only acts over short distances, because they're bosons being heavy can't go very far you know they only kind of exist as virtual particles for a short period of time so it only can exist at very close distances um, which is why you don't see it doing much in the world around you whereas electromagnetism you've got a massless force particle the photon it can just go off and do whatever it wants and that's essentially the gist of it um, this was later confirmed by experiment they found these bosons and it showed that you could unify forces you know it kind of like a there was a big rush wow. you know you can unify two of the fundamental forces only two more to go inspire people to try to unify the others hasn't worked so far this same technique hasn't really worked i'm afraid um people are trying different kind of techniques things like your um you know your theories of everything you hear about like string theory and stuff like that uh, which weinberg himself turned into he saw the writing on the wall and he turned to these other kinds of of theories um even toying around with the idea of the multiverse he was one of the um the first people to make a prediction like a an actual like numerical prediction based on the existence of a multiverse but yeah that's the direction he went he kind of still had this belief in that there was this sort of underlying aesthetically pleasing theory that would explain the universe and even though we still haven't found it yet i think he pointed the way with um his achievement uh in electro week in the 1960s not in the early 2000s as as Stu had led us to believe look i'm surprised chris uh considering how influential his work was that you hadn't leapt on the story earlier. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we com... Well, don't laugh. That's what's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. 
It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your guest is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are, who made the guest, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. in science and this week on the show I'm going to take a leaf out of Stu's book so to speak and give you a plant story um, I mean everybody knows Stu is our resident horticultural scientist so granted he has the plant goods but this week on the show I really want to ask the question that's been bugging me can a plant be a native and also an invasive species Thoughts, anyone? Horticultural scientist or otherwise? Well, I, I already know the answer to this one. So <laughs> the, the, answer is, the answer is fundamentally yes, because especially, I mean, in Australia, Australia is such a huge country. It's very easy to find something that was originally restricted to a small area and usually as a result of European settlement and changes to land use and things like that. They've broken out of their home territory and gone a bit crazy, gone a bit touristy, and they want to see the sights. It's a good way of describing it. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not a horticulturalist, but it brings for me, it brings to mind a bird, the um, the noisy miner, which mm-hmm. has really spread out its range and has become a pest species, even though it is also a native species. It makes it really difficult to do. Um, management of it because it's meant to be here. It's just not meant to yeah. be pushing everything there. else out. Yeah, or right here, right yeah, now, exactly. everywhere. In such, yeah, and so aggressive as well. Yeah, they're very aggressive. Yeah, yeah. So yes, this is this is true. And maybe um, our listeners out there, you know, maybe your mind's been blown. Maybe it hasn't. You knew that all along. Um, but let me tell you the story about how I got to this question. So at the moment. Um, where I live in Melbourne, you know, we're in our third week of lockdown six. Um, and like so many others out there, you know, both in this state and in others, uh, I've been taking the same walk for about a year. On my bad days, this is tedious and I never want to return there. On my good days, it means that I sit back and I observe how the natural environment is changing throughout the year. Um, right now, the weather seems to be changing down here in Melbourne, we're in the gulling season on the Wurundjeri calendar, uh, which sees orchids flowering. So obviously, whenever I'm on my walk, I'm trying to see if I can spot any orchids. I haven't had much luck yet. I've seen a lot of weeds, but not any orchids. But what I have been noticing, and maybe you have on your walks as well, 
is a bunch of incredibly beautiful yellow wattles bursting into plume and it just seems to be everywhere. These wattles are, are bursting into colour. So here I am on my walk of wattle appreciation. Um, obviously I turn to Google, I'm researching wattles finding out they're the most diverse flowering species in Australia. There's over a thousand different species of wattles. They're found in rainforests all the way to sort of like dry, arid, mallee. Um, and also they make an incredible food source. So wattle seed uh, has been used for thousands and thousands of years uh, with Australia's First Nations people to make flowers and bread. It's an excellent source of carbohydrate, protein, and high concentrations of potassium, calcium, iron, and zinc to get your macronutrient hit. I mean, wattles are just great for so many reasons. Of course, the other one being uh, they're a floral emblem um, and they lend their green and gold colors to, you know, multiple sporting teams. They've probably done more as a floral emblem to bring us together as a country than any other symbol of Australian identity. Maybe I'll just go out on a limb and say that. So you can imagine my shock when undergoing this research that I find out that there are actually some wattles that although they are Australian native plants, they've become invasive species and weeds and they're doing all that they can to crowd out local endemic species. They're not just doing that, they're changing soil structure and throwing off the balance of the ecosystem. So, so I'm going to spend the rest of the time naming and shaming a couple of these wattles. Um, it's because it's not all wattles. <laughs> it's just a couple. You're just going to look at the rogues gallery of, of the bad wattles. <laughs> it is. And as I said, there's a thousand species. I'm only looking at two rogues in the gallery today. This is fair and balanced. You're not just being prejudiced against these ones. You've got reasons for it. <laughs> I've got reasons, exactly. So first up, we've got the Sydney golden wattle. So that's Acacia longifolia, subspecies longifolia. This is a lovely looking wattle. It's got, uh, you know, your nice thin green leaves, um, your typical like, um, you know, fluffy wattle flowers. It's quite photogenic. Um, and, you know, that'll become important uh, later. Um, originally, the range of that plant was East Gippsland, so Malakuta Way, up to Brisbane in Queensland. Uh, but now it, it has become an invasive weed in Victoria, in South Australia, and in Western Australia. Uh, it's spread among the nation by um, gardeners, surely well-meaning gardeners, but who knows? I don't know about their intentions. But because it is so photogenic, you know, it's seen as a very charming ornamental plant. But alas, the seeds escape the garden and make their way into their, in, their way into the wild and can exist in the soil for many decades. Wow. Um, um, this is something, something that has spread from Sydney and is causing trouble throughout the rest of the country. <laughs> if there's only some sort of analogy we could make here that uh, I don't know. I think, I think one of... One you of the other things too, more. though, is that it had a natural range from Malakuta to Brisbane, but for some reason, someone decided, "Oh no, it's the Sydney Golden Wattle." Sydney Gold, no, 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 Sydney no. Sydney yeah. is the centre of its range, so therefore, it's the Wattle <laughs> from Sydney. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. So, like a lot of weeds, it it um 
the Sydney Golden Wattle, it capitalises on natural disaster. So after fire, it sends out shoots from its base. Uh, wattles are often one of the first species to sprout after a fire, and this one's no different. Um, so they're now, it's now completely dominant and spreading in many areas, including um, in the Grampians or Garryward in Victoria. The Sydney Golden Wattle is causing all sorts of soil problems. So many native species that are endemic to um, the Grampians or Garryward, they don't like high levels of soil nitrogen. But this particular, the Sydney Wattle, it is a nitrogen fixing plant. So it increases the amount of nitrogen in the soil. So it's changing the whole soil nutrient sort of status um, and the physical structure of the soil. And therefore it's changing what the ecosystem looks like. So yeah, that's number one offending wattle on the list. Um, number, the other offending wattle is the coast wattle, which is Acacia longifolia subspecies Sephora. Um, now the flowers on this look, um, look very similar to the other walls, beautiful little fluffy um, yellow flowers, but the leaves are a little bit shorter and stubbier than the Sydney golden wattle. As the name suggests, the wattle uh, is endemic to the east coast from western Victoria, um, so up all the way around the coast and back up to Brisbane. Um, and then it also gets around in Tasmania as well. It was originally restricted to sandy um, sites around the tops of beaches, but has been deliberately planted out as a sand binder in other sites. So with all this extra planting, it's naturally spread not only from those sandy um, dunes, but into a heathlands that are um, inland of beaches. And it's causing massive problems around our coast. It's dominating local ecosystems. It's displacing native species. It's messing with local insect habitats and pretty much modifying what sand dune patterns look like and the structure of the sand dune. So it's you know, because it's a much more bulky plant, it's causing, um, it's causing these sand dunes to become dense shrublands. So there's a higher fuel levels and high bush, bushfire danger as well. So it's kind of so, doing what they brought it in to do, but it's just doing it too well. It's doing it too well. It's um, and and it's doing it in parts that don't need it. Okay. So it's going inland as well, and it's ending up in um, yeah, all over uh, Western Australia as well. It's really sort of taking over. So yeah, there are some major issues with both, you know, invasive species from overseas and invasive species, as we say, from different parts of Australia that impact on the way our ecosystems work. They end up costing billions of dollars and all sorts of problems. So next time you're at the nursery looking for new plants for the garden, do some research first, find out what's endemic to your local area and start there. You can use an app, maybe PlantNet, um, which can help identify plants and their range and plants in your local area. And um, yeah, these are a couple of ways you can stop plants jumping the fence and eventually going out of control.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.